Good evening, Sangha. How nice of you to keep noble silence and resist the urge to say in a choir, good evening. But I saw it in your eyes. So I'd like to talk tonight about developing sanctuary and the sanctuary of the heart and some of the ways that that happens, some of the ways that we're practicing and some of the territory that's common on loving kindness retreats or meditation retreats in general. And if you remember the opening night, I talked about sanctuary and service. And that was really the role of loving kindness practice as I've practiced it and um, seen how it develops that uh, we're bound to be engaged with the world. There's really no way to live in an unengaged way. So how do we engage from uh, the place of our values? And how do we strengthen our connection to our values? So that when we do interact with the world, um, we know those moments when we're in alignment with ourselves. And so whatever action we're doing, small or large, um, easy or difficult, we know when we're um, aligned with our purpose and when we feel really um, caught or confused and what happens when our, uh, our hearts are not in a place of uh, sanctuary or not in a place of their purity, and yet we still are engaged with the world and we find ourselves getting uh, upset or irritated or impatient, judging people that we wish we didn't have that critical mind, um, some of the pettiness that comes up in relationship. So eventually, loving-kindness practice integrates into the whole of our lives and becomes um, how we serve ourselves and how we serve the world. And the way to do that is to purify your heart and to know sanctuary within, so that as your own heart and mind purify, more often than not, your heart feels rested, it feels gathered, it feels brightened, it feels resourced for the challenges of the day. And more often than not, that's the case as you engage the day. So we do need to develop a sanctuary within, a place to return uh, and renew ourselves when the chaos of the world has gotten a bit too much and we've gotten overextended. So that we uh, know how to return, recover, rest, renew, ourselves and then re-engage and put that beautiful heart into action. But tonight I'm going to talk more about the sanctuary part of that. And maybe as we get closer to the end of the retreat, um, we might talk about the more worldly engagement of loving kindness practice. And you can already feel that here. So there are little ways that we engage. Mostly we're trying to let each other have our own personal space to do the practice so we're not in a, a largely engaging mode. But people do hold the door for each other. People are letting each other um, be patient in line uh, around the food or other ways that we do small acts of kindness. So even this surrounding, we are engaging with each other, just we're trying to keep it to a a quiet minimum. And that's sort of the service we're offering each other is letting each other have our own intimate personal space to begin to feel into our hearts and our minds and really taste moment by moment, what is this thought stream like? What is this heart stream like? What is this mode of my being like? And if we were interacting, that wouldn't be possible. So it's one of the gifts that we give each other to be in silent retreat. We're not really ignoring each other. We're creating a field of intimacy that we all get to practice within. And the silence is a big uh, generosity. Um, Most of us would prefer to be distracted by connecting uh, in our difficult times, but we actually get to go through difficult times without much distraction and therefore learn to be conscious within them. So that's already an act of generosity, an act of service that we're offering each other, although it might not seem like it. I also um, I'd like to add a support like uh, Anushka last night is to give us some context in the middle of a retreat like this um, to remind you again to be really careful of the evaluations of what you think is happening or what you hoped would happen 
or any fear that what is happening uh, might not be worth this much effort. Um, From what I've seen, uh, from my own experience of going on retreats where I really didn't understand what was happening while it was happening, um, and I didn't have the faith to go through those hard days, so I would doubt a lot, that a lot of the reward of a retreat is not actually found on the retreat. It's found um, after the retreat. And then sometimes on the retreat, you can begin to feel that, which is nice when it's actually on the retreat. But some of the habits that were challenging and some of the things that were transforming will play out over the next weeks or the next months. And it's possible that this will start something in motion that will um, carry through and keep growing over the next few years. So if you're planting redwood trees, you don't, get, you don't measure them hour by hour and think like, I planted it well, I watered it, and it hasn't grown at all. Like it's a redwood tree. You gave it the right conditions and now give it 1,500 years to really manifest <laughs> what it's supposed to manifest. If you go up to the great trees in Northern California and Southern Oregon, you know, they take 2,000 years to, to really manifest their grandeur but they start as, as really fragile uh, saplings. So to the degree you can have faith in this tradition as a tradition that has planted redwood trees, which is why people have loved it for thousands of years through many different cultures. If you could be patient enough to say one phrase, and one phrase is like planting one little redwood tree and then another one, that you're actually, by now you've created a forest of redwood trees. And they're really powerful. These simple phrases, these simple practices that we're doing, even if it doesn't feel like much in the moment, they really are connected to very deep parts of our psyche, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, deep into our biology. Um, This uh, connection to loving kindness, the connection to unity, to caring for each other and caring for ourselves. And this is really a a redwood forestry that we're doing. (laughs) So it's not the, uh, whatever the quickest vegetable that grows in a garden, it's not one of those. (laughs) Where you should be able to see it day by day growing uh, or there'd be something wrong. And yet you still might, you still might feel that over the course of the days, something has happened. There's an analogy that worked for me to give me faith. in long retreat and why I stopped measuring myself on retreat. What I would measure is if in the moment I was aligned with the practice, that's about as far as I would measure and the rest was really up to forces that were beyond my control. If I had a suffering retreat where there was a lot of body pain or boredom or hard emotions or I was having a, um, a fruition retreat where I would practice and almost everything I did seemed to turn into joy. Um, more what I, tune into these days is just, am I in the moment humbly aligned with the practice? And that's about all I'm trying to do is just align in the moment, a sincere phrase or feeling a breath or taking a step. And am I cultivating what can gently be done by a human moment by moment, nothing Herculean. So when I, um, when I graduated from college, I lived up uh, north of Seattle on the shores of the Puget Sound. And the Puget Sound is um, salt water, so it's open to the Pacific Ocean, but there's so many islands and channels of waters that you don't get any waves that come that far inland. So even though it's the, the Pacific Ocean coming right up to the shore, um, often the water would be completely glassy flat if it wasn't, if there was no wind, so the water would be flat. You could row out on a rowboat and spend a couple of hours just enjoying being on the water. And the whole time the tide would be coming in. And you might notice a little tiny current or some seaweed flowing by, but there'd be no indicator when you're out on the boat that the tide had come up until you went back to shore. As soon as you went back to shore, you realized it's come up four feet. I never saw it happen. So that is happening for you all. And you don't have to worry so much that the tide's coming in. Every day you're on a retreat like this, it's very transformational. Yet when you're out on the water, you can't tell the tide. You have to be on the shore to see if the tide's coming or going. Out on the water, you can't tell. 
So it will really be when you drive away from here and the first couple of days that you get back to shore, you'll see how, how high the tide has risen. And doing that for many years taught me that the tide has always risen and anything I measured during the retreat really could not gauge the transformation that was happening. So even though my mind tried to do it, after a while I said, this is, has never really done anything productive. So, okay, mind, try, but it, you're, really not, uh, you're not really measuring anything of value. And my mind has done it less and less because I've seen it's just a, it's just a suffering mode trying to measure. You can also be out on the Puget Sound and the wind can come up and you can get waves and that you're getting waves really also says nothing about the tide. It says something about the wind. So smooth water, wavy water, nothing, those are not actually in relationship to how much, the, you know, how many trillions of gallons are washing in and washing out. It's just those are the conditions of the moment. So if you're having a, a smooth day um, or you're having a rough, choppy, wavy day, um, that says more about the conditions of the moment and really not something about the retreat. So don't use any particular moment of the retreat to try to gauge the retreat itself. So um, I invite you to do that for your, uh, to reduce your suffering. Nice thing about a long retreat also is that you'll realize <clears throat> um, that any type of moment you have doesn't end up being where you get to claim. It's just a moment of the heart's expression and then conditions change. And so if you have a rough afternoon, it doesn't define you. It's just the conditions of a rough afternoon. And then you go on to the evening and the evening is its own set of conditions. Same is true for beautiful moments that open up. You, you can't claim them. You can't say, ah, now that I've done it, um, I'm in this beautiful state and I'll never go back to suffering. I would never choose that again. And it's just that that's the conditions that you're in. And then the conditions shift. When I would spend a year as a monk in Burma, many things happened, but one of the things that happened until I caught it was I would do the simple practice. My mind would get relaxed. I would feel some loving kindness or some presence. I would get very excited about it. I would think this is so beautiful, so obvious. I'm so glad I made these choices. It's so obvious to me, I'll never go back to clinging. It's just suffering. I feel I already have enough. A, a, a child could do this. It's so simple. It's so, it's so obvious. I can't imagine why I ever suffered and why I'd ever choose it again. And then if it lasted longer, I felt like, ah, oh, I'm gonna stay here for the rest of my life. And then conditions would change. I'm like, up, 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 don't go back to the way things were. Hold on to the way things are, because you got it just like you liked them. This is why you came to Burma and became a monk. And then the conditions would change and a mood would come in. And I would start to get agitated or tired again or frustrated. And I'm like, no, where's my beautiful state and the home I made? And the, it was so validating. And now I'm going back down to this hole. And I would suffer. It'd be very humbling. At some point, the suffering would back off, but I'd be very humble. It's like, okay, I'm not going to try to do that again. I'm just going to do the simple practice. And I do the simple practice, and it would work. And I feel humbly connected to the present and tender. And I was like, oh, it's happened. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I just got into that clinging mode. I'll never do that again. Why would, <laughs> why would I ever cling to that? A child could do this. Like, I can't believe I, I can't believe I fell for it again. Like, yeah, it's so beautiful. It's like, oh, it's so beautiful. This is where I want to spend the rest of my life. It's so beautiful. Yeah, like, why would I ever choose clinging again? You just suffer when you do that. Like, yep, totally clear, totally clear. Like, oops, it's starting to change a little bit. Hold on, hold on, whoa, don't go back down there. That's horrible, and I go back down. And that was a, that was months and months and months of like clinging to beautiful states and getting beaten up over them, and then being like, don't cling to beautiful states. And then I wouldn't until they would rise again, and I'd cling to them. <laughs> <clears throat> And one thing I learned is that there's nothing I would, like, sense pleasures, chocolate, uh, beautiful things are nothing compared to the beauty of your own heart. So if you're, you know, once we learn not to cling to transient things, there's something more seductive, which is your own beauty, your own patience, your own kindness, your own clarity. Um, so if you were going to cling to anything, you'd probably cling to that. But that's still clinging. 
It's called Dharma craving, Dharma clinging, and Dharma selfing. And if you cling, uh, crave, and try to make a self out of a transient experience, you'll suffer. So many of you will feel that. The nice thing about a long retreat is you can feel that a few times and start to get the message. Whereas on a shorter retreat, you might end on a high and think like, did it! (laughs) 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 So you have to, one of the maturity, if you want to be a mature practitioner, which you all do because you suffer less, is you really have to be, you have to accept that it's all waves. And that no one wave, no, it's just a set of conditions. It's the wind of the day or it's the flat water of the day. And you can't really control enough conditions to make any one of them permanent. But if you have that wise relationship, those kind intentions, more often than not, uh, benevolent states do pass through, but they're transient and you have to mature your relationship to the fact that all these beautiful things do keep evolving. So it's another way to suffer less, is to really, truly not cling. But if you get manipulative, if I don't cling, I get them more. So (laughs) I'll get them more if I don't cling. So don't cling, that way I can secretly get them more, which is really uh, Dharma game playing. So in developing inner sanctuary, there, there are many things that happen but we could talk about two different categories and both of them are really transformational. One is the process we call a purification. I'm gonna use that language of purification um, where you actually go through hard experiences on retreat or in life and you could either those hard experiences could close you down because they're difficult and you don't wanna have them so you shut down or get defended to them. Another is where you humbly yet courageously stay with the practice even during long, boring times, or even during times when you're angry. And <clears throat> a couple of things happen when you do that. One is that you strengthen your conviction to stay oriented towards kindness, even when it's uh, challenging. There's grief, there's irritation, there's judgment, there's uh, fantasies that come. And in the middle of all those conditions, you're still, you have the compass heading, I want to be oriented to kindness, even if I'm experiencing anger. I want to know where is kindness even when I'm experiencing grief. And it's not really uh, obvious kindness because there's a lot of grief there or there's a lot of irritation, but you haven't bought into the total rage of anger or the lost in grief because there's some part of you that's been developed to be steady enough to remember kindness still matters, even in times that are difficult. So if you're having a difficult retreat, in some ways you're, you're planting seeds of kindness in territory that often doesn't have any. Uh, Thomas Merton said the true love is learned in the hour the heart is turned to stone. And so if you're having a moment where your heart is turned to stone or it's boiling, um, and in those moments, loving kindness seems like the last thing you could reach for or intend and yet in the middle of that cauldron of heat or the wave of tears or feeling lost and despondent or bored as if you're really being crushed by this oppressive boulder of uh, boredom, in those conditions, it's so um, humbly noble to say, even in these conditions, I wish you well. Even when I'm going through whatever I'm going through, I haven't lost track of the fact that I care for you. So uh, having done that now for years, that happens more often than not. I'm having a bad day and I'm frustrated by things and I get overwhelmed. But even in those, I still have a little compass inside that points north or it points towards kindness. So that while I'm contending with my own difficult state, I can remember that other people, I care for them. And even care for myself, which is even more important when I'm suffering is not just to suffer in my own frustrations or hardships or aches and pains in my body or confusions in my mind, that in those moments I remember one of these Brahma Viharas of compassion or loving kindness or equanimity um, or the joy of other times or seeing the joy in other people even if I'm going through hard times. 
So if that has been more of your experience on this retreat, I bow with deep compassion for how hard that is. Um, I bow in um, communion with you of having been there many times, as have all the teachers. Um, None of us have gotten away with only pleasant and affirming loving-kindness experiences. We've all had our meltdowns. Um, So much so that we're oriented to it, that we, we know that that comes as part of the territory. There was one time when I was doing a mindfulness practice and the teachers kept saying, like, you could really do with more loving kindness for yourself. And I'd cringe inside because I knew I didn't have access to loving kindness for myself. And at some point I said, okay, if you're going to keep saying it, I might as well try it. And I started practicing loving kindness and it hurt a lot because I didn't have a good relationship to myself. There was a lot of judgment and I had a lot of perfectionism and could never quite establish a sense of self that I really liked, or if it did, it was so rare, I'd cling to it and it would fade and I'd be disappointed. And then I decided to go on a a long retreat, a three-month retreat, and it turned into a three-month loving-kindness retreat, and I was trying to do all the categories and all the directions and realized I haven't even really gotten to myself yet. Like, there's so much debris I'm clearing out and judgments and... um, that, you know, very humbly, I thought, rather than conquer this practice and be one of the, the quick ones, I'm going to be one of the slow ones and actually just take these three months and learn better my relationship to myself. And during that retreat, I, I was getting so much irritation, so much anger. It was so humiliating. It's like, I've been at this for a month and all I do is hate people. <laughs> In fact, I think I hate them more than I ever have. <laughs> And it's, it's, it's so embarrassing. I go to my teachers, like, I, don't, I, should, I should leave. Like, it's so obvious this is not for me. Like, no, this is a good sign. So they would say that you have the courage to stay another day even though it's, nothing's been affirming. <laughs> and I was like, if you say so, I'll, I'll try one more day. But I just, it's so, like, this person, just their breathing, just like, oh, my God, I, I, I want to kill them or me. And like, the way this person walks, it's so disorganized. And this person clinks their spoon in their teacup way too many times. It's like the sugar's been stirred. You don't have to keep doing it. This is compulsive. Whatever you're doing is really selfish because you're just clinking the spoon. Pay attention. You're really destroying my loving kindness. And then I would see that, and I'd be mortified. It's like, oh my God, I'm loathing somebody for the clinking of their spoon and their cup. And like... But every now and then I would get a really bad like, wave of loathing. So I had to actually do sitting practice when everybody else was walking. And as soon as humans would enter the room, I had to go out walking because they're just like, no, no, not, not the humans again. <laughs> not these people. Um, so I put up with it for a while, and then um, two and a half months into this three-month retreat, I was like, please let there be a validating experience. Let's <laughs> let something happen that I can turn to and say this was worthwhile. And <clears throat> I was feeling very kind of raw in my heart, and this one teacher I'd been working with um, just started to get on my nerves. Like, there's... <laughs> It was like nothing they said seemed to help and I really was doubting that they knew what they were talking about or they didn't know how to help me. I was too broken or they were too broken that they couldn't help me or the whole practice was broken. And, and then they, they, I didn't know who was going to be giving the Dharma talk that night so I sat there and I was willing to endure the humans during a Dharma talk. And she got on the stage and it's like, I can't do it. I cannot listen to your voice for 60 minutes. I'm out of here. And so before everybody really settled down, I popped up and walked out. And it was December in Massachusetts and it was frigid cold. It had been like two feet of snow that had been packed into ice um, for weeks. And I had to put on all this clothing. And I went outside, it was nighttime, the frigid cold, and I was alone in this field of ice and it was so cold and it was like penetrating my body very quickly. It got into my hands and crawling up my arms and doing loving kindness practice, crunching in the dry snow, like crunch, crunch, crunch. It's dry, it's cold, it's dark. And she starts giving a Dharma talk where she is killing it. So I can hear this the, a laughter. I know it's the laughter that brings the tears of joy and like over and over and over. It's like, God, she never gives a talk like that and I'm crunching alone. <laughs> 
in the snow, and I was like, ah, I'm such a meta failure. I cannot believe this. Like, they're all warm inside, laughing. The practice works for them. And I'm this meta failure crunching around in the snow and the dark. And, and then that, I was holding it with some resentment, but trying not to have given to it. And at some point, just the dam broke. And I was like, what the hell have I been doing here? And this huge wave of doubt came, this huge sense of betrayal. And it's like, how did I end up here? They, they could not have been teaching me well. There's no way. At two and a half months, I hate everybody. <laughs> and it's just rolling out of me like the, like the fissures on Hawaii. Just this lava just keeps breaking through and burning down the houses. And I'm like, oh my God, there's so much rage and hatred and this can't be right. And I'd hear the laughter coming like, oh, you guys, I'm just killing me with that laughter. I'm so resentful that, of your laughter. It's like, no, don't be resentful of their laughter. God, it's like, you should be celebrating. It's like, no, not tonight. I just can't do it. I got resentful. I got angry. And it's like really defined about the whole thing. Crunching in the snow and this plane flew overhead. And I had this violent fantasy. I was like, I hope that plane drops a bomb. And I'm the one person who was out of the building when the bomb hit. And right when they're laughing, right when all those good Buddhists are really getting it, the bomb goes right through the roof and it blows them all up. And I happened to live because I was crunching alone in the snow. I was like, God, I'm two and a half months into a loving kindness retreat and I just wished every yogi around me was obliterated by a bomb. But I was so into it, I couldn't stop this like release of this rage and this betrayal. And I started really loving it with you know a little thin veil of embarrassment, but part of me was like, yeah, yeah. And then I imagined myself in the fantasy, the sun was rising and they were, you know, just the all the bricks were blown apart and so satisfying, it was so satisfying. And then the crescendo was this moment where this Shakespearean thing happened inside me. And I imagined myself the next day walking around, if any two bricks still happened to be joined, I would break them apart. <laughs> so I'd sift through the rubble and it's like, no, you don't get to have two bricks still together. I want complete obliteration. And I pictured myself doing this, and my mind said to itself, yes, let no two bricks be joined. <laughs> and that was the peak of the, like, the full crescendo of like, no two bricks shall be joined, and that will be my mission. And at that moment, it's like the finally getting the hairy ball out of the shower or something like that. Like you finally, like this thing went out, and it, uh, it left me, and it like this big, tarry, nasty, resentful, woe is me, pity party thing came out, and it was out. It actually had left my system, and I felt empty, humble, sort of embarrassed, but cleaned out. And I thought, oh my God, I wonder how many times this loving-kindness teacher has had students loathing them while they patiently try to teach them loving-kindness practice, knowing that these purifications happen and we do get a lot of rage coming through. And so right as that left me, there was a renewal that happened very automatically. I was like, wow, these poor teachers doing their best. They're just humans and they're patiently trying to teach. And they went through it, and now I'm going through it, and now I feel really humbled, and I don't feel like I want to get an A in Buddhism. I'm just happy not to be that hateful. And my heart started opening at that point, and it took two and a half months for my heart to open, and it started feeling really uh, spacious and forgiving and humble, and beautiful qualities started coming through, but it didn't wasn't like an escalator that every, you know, over the two months I got higher and higher and higher. I got more and more capable to feel the full pot of rage that had never been gotten out um, until finally did come out. So that's one kind of purification where it doesn't, it's not validating day by day in a sort of an upward sense. You actually start to get into more anger than you've ever felt. And it's kind of, feels like the practice is backfiring. 
And yet we've all been through that. And once you go through it, you start to have some faith that like, that's how you get the anger out of you. So you don't just try to practice the good and hope you can head into the good. Sometimes you really do have to make room for the tears or the rage so they can pass through you. It goes from trapped inside on its way out. So some of you are gonna have waves of that. Some of you might have a retreat that that's actually the theme. And in our experience, that actually is very deeply healing. When I left the retreat, I was a new person. And the validating experience this came after the retreat because that big, nasty, pity party, rageful uh, pattern inside had left my system. And I got to walk through the world free of it. And it was worth it. It was worth it because the rest of my years since that retreat have not been contending with this part of myself. And it's easy to tell the, the noble story after the fact, but while it was happening, it was difficult. There was a lot of doubt. There, the emotions themselves were difficult. Um, so I was grateful that the teachers had enough faith in me to keep me, to keep me going through that. So that's one type of purification that happens. And it does create sanctuary inside because as you feel the anger, it does conclude, it does leave your system. And what's left behind is a heart that's more tender, more humble, um, more easily kind, um, because you purified it. And that creates sanctuary inside. There's another kind of sanctuary that happens. And this one tends to be a little bit more validating. And it's where with some practice, when the conditions are right, for the timing of your own psychological development, as you practice loving kindness, your heart and mind do settle. When invited to settle, they do settle. And of course we all want that because there's less suffering, but that's not our choice. It's like um, Ishiko saying with the car wash, you have to just go through the car wash and trust the brushes and the whole process. And you did want the car cleaned. So now you have to kind of open up the retreat you're having but sometimes hearts do settle. And through invitation and cultivation, we learn how to, it's like having a child that's crying. You hold it, you uh, let it cry itself to sleep. And then just by holding it, giving it a safe place to cry and then relax and feel trust and then let it go into quietude. By holding your own heart and being patient day by day, you might feel that quiet is settling in, or that the heart does glow a little more. And those are more validating experiences. And those experiences, you have to be very careful not to cling or identify or think that it'll only be like that in, in increasing over the days. Because we all will purify and we all will develop um, these beautiful states just at different times. So when the heart does settle, does collect, it's not as distracted, not as tired, not as um, uh, irritated, when it's not uh, afflicted, um, we can start to feel something that we don't feel in everyday life as often, which is a type of collectedness, a settledness, a steadiness of warmth. And our attention does approve more than we might feel in everyday life. And this starts to open up to what we call samadhi. And it gets translated as concentration, um, which is kind of unfortunate because the word is stuck. But concentration is not a great translation of samadhi. Concentration seems effortful and narrowing. I'm concentrating on this. I'm blocking something out. I'm focusing my mind. So you'll hear this English word concentration, but it really doesn't capture a lot of the facets of samadhi. Samadhi tends to be at the same time a type of uh, settled well-being. So you yourself feel content, you feel well, you feel not so tired or haggard. There's a, a, an inside feeling inside your body, inside your heart, inside your mind of feeling rested, not fragmented, not tired. There's a type of well-being. There's a type of stability in the flow of experience. So it's not super bumpy when there's samadhi, at least internally. You feel well, there's a type of stability. 
And there is a type of unity of attention. So your mind isn't fragmented. You actually have a whole attention that feels fairly stable and you feel well enough that you're not looking for your happiness outside. There's enough happiness kind of bubbling up from within. within. And your attention, your heart, your mind feel fairly stable. And it's easy to apply your mind and your heart towards whatever you're choosing. I have a friend who has, a, like many friends, a really bad cell phone addiction. And every now and then we go out and have dinner um, and I've, I've just made an absolute rule that she cannot touch her cell phone while we're having dinner together because if I don't make that rule, we'll be talking and then I see that her, something's changed in her eyes and she says, I really have to get this. And she pulls up the phone, it's been vibrating in her pocket. And so she is not really giving me her full attention. It's always split and it's somewhat addictive to be split onto the cell phone. And it's not really that there's an emergency, it's just um, a bad habit. And that's often what we're giving each other as we go through our everyday lives is somewhat split attention. You know, we gather as much as we can and give it to the friends we have, but where so many things we're trying to keep track of that it's rare when you give somebody your full attention through these meditation practices, we can learn to calm ourselves down, feel a little more contentment inside, not by something we're achieving outside of ourselves, but it's just a state that we're in. It's a type of quality inside to be content, to be steady, and then to give somebody your full heart, your full attention, whether it's a child who wants to show you some part of their world, or it's a friend, or somebody you're just meeting, um, somebody you care for, to give somebody your full attention is quite um, a rare and beautiful thing. You know when somebody's doing it, when somebody is actually listening to what you're saying and is patient enough and has the full attention to really hear you. When I <clears throat> was working in a homeless shelter for homeless um, and abused teenagers, and I'd come off a meditation retreat, that was really the most precious thing I would bring to the shelter is my full attention. And a lot of these homeless kids had never received full attention from an, from an adult. And it would engender so much trust in them. Like I could feel them wanting attention from someone who felt okay inside and was okay and wanted to actually pay attention to them. And so that was part of the, the service I learned from meditation that it puts you in a great place of connecting to the world because you have a whole attention that's been resourced and it's been grounded, it's been trained uh, not to be fragmented. So this is in this category of, um, of qualities that we put uh, in this word samadhi. And it's what can be developed by loving kindness practice. It's sort of what, it's one of the things that gets developed, especially on a meditation retreat, is a wholeness of attention, an underlying sense of well-being and a um, unity of mind, a unity of your attention, your focus. You would know everyday samadhi by what it feels like when you go to the right conditions to study or to write something. So you go into a library, and in a library you're not so distracted. So under those conditions, your attention is more focused. Um, maybe having a tiny bit of the right type of caffeine in a quiet place and you find you really can apply yourself, you can apply the power of your heart and your mind towards what you want to do with it. It's not so fragmented. Meditatively, it's those moments where without a lot more effort, you find that you can stay with the phrases. So you've been doing about the same phrases with about the same people for several days. And what you'll find is there are some times that it's very challenging, you're, it's kind of boring, it's the same practice, it's gotten boring, or you're tired, you didn't sleep well, you're a little irritated. And those times it's actually difficult to remember to say the phrases, to say the phrases sincerely, to keep somebody in mind because your heart is too tired, it's too restless, it's got to, it's, remembering all of its resentments or whatever the mind seems to do. In those moments, there's not a lot of samadhi. There's not a lot of well-being. Your mind isn't unified. Uh, your attention isn't focused. Then you can contrast that to other times 
where you're not necessarily practicing all that differently, but you come into a time where you settle in and it's like, yeah, there was a, an afternoon. It's usually what we call our good sits or the, the sits where there actually was samadhi, even though they're all good sits because they're all transformational. But the ones we enjoy tend to be the ones where our hearts were steady. There was an underlying sense of well-being, contentment, so we weren't struggling with that. And then you could keep somebody in mind for a period of time and you could say phrases for them, they felt fairly intuitive. That's your own samadhi starting to arise. And we've all had moments of that. If you're in a little bit more of a suffering purification retreat, you have a little less of that. But if you're in a time where your mind isn't struggling and isn't releasing a lot of old trap, difficult emotions, you'll feel a little more calm, a little more connectedness, a little more contentment. And from that, saying simple phrases of kindness to yourself or another seems doable. And your mind might be slightly distracted, but it's kind of easy to bring it back. It's not that resistant to the practice. That's usually when you're, that's your own um, wave of samadhi. So it's not some foreign thing that you'll one day have. You've already had it. And what's helpful is to learn when that's happening. So when the practice is easy, one thing you might notice is that there's, a, there's enough contentment inside that you can actually be generous to consider yourself or another being with loving kindness. And as your own contentment dips, it's actually harder to do the practice because you're, you're struggling with discontent. The Buddha, <clears throat> one of the things that was so amazing about him is that not only did he get free, but he studied the mechanisms of getting free so he could teach practices that help people get free rather than just showing that it's possible. So in developing samadhi, he said there are five qualities of mind that need to be developed to really stabilize and welcome samadhi, welcome this uh, easiness of practice where your mind is very easily absorbed into loving kindness practice. So these are called the five absorption factors. The first one, the Pali word is vitaka. And with vitaka, you can all aim your attention. If I said, look at my hand, you could point your eyes to my hand. If I said, look out the window, you could turn your eyes. So we can all point our, our attention. But with the vitaka, you point your attention and then you really commit your attention with interest. So there's, I'm looking at the statues, but then I, st- I steady my attention and really take in the statues in front of me. So that's pointing my attention and vitaka. Um, connects with a little more firmness. So you do this in the loving kindness practice when you could be just rotely doing the phrases, but you're doing them with half your attention. And then you wake up a little bit and it's like, no, I wanna do this sincerely. So that moment your mind sits up a little bit and does it with a little more intention. That's this quality. The Pali word is bitaka. We often call that aiming the mind, but it's, a, it's steadying the aim of, of your heart or your mind. And so you've all been practicing that. Every time your mind wanders and you bring it back and you recommit, you're practicing this factor that leads to samadhi, that supports absorbing into meditation. The second factor is called vichara. And so it's vichara, um, Rather than just make that first initial connection, you sustain your connection, you sustain your interest. You really begin to take in the details. So again, of the, if we're using Vitaki Vichara, the statues in the middle of the room, we point our attention towards them, we take interest, we give them our full attention, and then we sustain that interest when that really reveals the details uh, on the statues. We can really appreciate them with a steadiness of attention. So this you also are doing. Every time you try to sustain your mind when it could wander, you're sustaining it in meditation. You're sustaining it in the, in the meditation of uh, the phrases or the feeling of loving kindness. And this is a lot of the work of meditation is aiming and sustaining your attention when it would kind of wander on its own if you didn't intend those two things.
The third factor that really supports uh, samadhi, this collection of attention, is a brightened interest. So if your mind is a little dull, like you look at these statues after a while, you think you've seen all the detail there is to see, and then through familiarity they become a little bit less interesting, and then your mind begins to wander. If you can renew your interest and say, it's fascinating, it's fascinating how these were carved and the wood they're making, they were made of, and looking at the shadows and the way the light's playing, and um, the facial expression on the different statues and on the posture. and So through that, you, you brighten your interest in what you're doing. You can either let interest come and go passively, and you'll notice meditation is a little easier when you find it interesting, or you know that this is a helpful factor, so you can welcome it. And if you feel like interest has been low, and you've been waiting for it to arise organically, you might actually renew your interest. So one common way to do that is to say, here I am on a retreat. These are rare conditions. I worked hard to be in these conditions. I'm past the hardship of the first couple of days. I'm not in the kind of the crazy planning that comes on the last day. Every hour in the middle is actually as is really great conditions. So I don't want to I don't want to become complacent. I actually want to renew my interest and treat these moments as precious. So you can kind of, with a little bit of reflection, you can brighten your own heart up and re-engage with interest. Start from a fresh connection to the practice and watch out how it sort of becomes dull and you lose interest. You brighten your own interest up in the practice. Each of these factors you can welcome forward and then they will or won't happen depending on the conditions you're in. But by welcoming them forward, they also begin to arise more often organically. When they arise more organically, that's usually when practice gets easier. So you're not trying to encourage interest, but renewed interest arises. It's more likely to arise if you've been cultivating it. So it's part of the cultivation to keep track of your level of interest and see if you can brighten yourself up. The fourth factor that leads to meditative absorption or meditative steadiness um, is called sukha. And sukha has the Indo-European root. The SU is the same as our SU in sugar. So it's the sweetness. And it's when the heart and the mind are happy and content. Those moments taste sweet. Whereas this third factor, I, I didn't give the Pali word, is called piti, translated as delight or interest. Piti tends to be uplifting and brightening. Sukha tends to be settling and content-making. So piti is a little bit more like what caffeine does. Um, as possible, sukha is a little bit more like what your warm almond milk does. <laughs> or your milk if you're not uh, using alternative milk. It's a little bit more content-making. There's a little bit more of like, ah, so your feet up by a fire, sitting back in a comfortable chair and exhaling into kind of ease. You, if you can, you can begin to mix PT and sukha so that the sukha is very settling, but you could go into kind of settling contentment and kind of kicking back and spacing out. Or you could take the PT and rev it up so you're really interested, but it feels a little bit too jazzy. And you mix them together and you get this delighted, relaxed state of mind, state of heart. It's taking interest, but in this space of ease and contentment. That's usually when, they, when you can mix them, that's when they really work beautifully together. The brightening of the mind, but also a sense of well-being, contentment that leads to some stability. And the fifth factor that stabilizes these absorptions is uh, being very steady in practice, very absorbed in loving kindness, um, is called ekagata. And ek is the old Pali word for one. So it means the one frame of attention, the one direction of attention. And to really allow this to ripen, you do have to let go of all the other tempting things that could pull on your attention 
And sometimes this takes a beautiful act of faith to say, there's so many things that I could keep track of, and I am keeping my secret little list of things not to forget that I'm holding on to, and I'm keeping them safe. And it's like, you know, I'm just going to let go of it all and give myself over to one phrase of full-hearted sincerity. And I let go of the past, I let go of the future, I let go of concerns, and I do a devotional opening up to the practice, and I give myself over to it fully, and I, with no reservation, then you're getting into this one frame. If there's still a little hold back, then your mind is still not fully given over to the loving kindness practice. So one thing you might experiment with, just as an experiment, not as to take on a whole belief system, is what would it be like if I let go of all my anchors and I just gave myself over humbly to do loving kindness practice? And that's my mission. If that's what I was, someone came by and said, hey, the UN wants you to be uh, ambassador of loving kindness. And what we want you to do is just to walk back and forth and sit every now and then and care for the world. Would you be up for it? And you know, it's like, yeah, I, I could let go of everything else and just be someone so that there was always somebody on the planet who was caring for the planet, not in a passing thought, but that was their, that's what they wanted to evoke. That's actually, if I was ever going to take a sabbatical, I have this idea of going back to Burma and just walking around this, uh, some of the beautiful holy sites and praying for the world. I don't know how to solve many of the world's problems. I'd love to help. And it's so complex that I do try to help. But sometimes in that, my own heart gets tired and I get a little distracted and caught up in my views. And what I would like to do is actually give myself over just to that simple intention to be someone whose heart is convicted humbly to give full, its full attention to loving kindness. It takes a while for you to put all your eggs in this basket. So that's why the mind still goes out and has fantasies about travel you might want to do or falling in love in one day or resentments that you want to take care of and vengeances you want to actually act out on people who teased you in fourth grade. And your mind still goes out on trips because it still thinks that there's something important about the way where it's wandered to. What you can invite is I let go of all of it just for a time. And I give myself over to one sincere phrase at a time, very humbly and full-heartedly. Then you get this one frame, this one intention, and you're not having your heart split, tracking several things. It's just here to do one simple thing, which is to say one sincere phrase at a time. If you welcome these factors, they tend to improve and they're more likely to arise. And yet there still are conditions beyond their control. So even though you welcome these factors, they may not come, or they may come and they may go quickly. That's really not up to you. That's really not where you measure your practice or don't get attached to the particular results. You can be more humble than that and just make sincere invitations. That's where I've gotten. My practice over those three months went from I'm going to, I'm going to master this to I hope one day I learn how to authentically care. And this three months has shown me how to begin that process. I ended up so much more humble than when I began, yet that was closer to loving kindness. It wasn't as egoically grand. So to relax yourself, give your whole heart over to the practice is very supportive to how the practice develops. Yet you still might get a mind that wanders a lot. Yet you have done what you can do to invite these qualities, invite yourself into the practice. And with those sincere invitations, it's more likely to ripen on the retreat or afterwards. And it's about as best we can do because there are waves. There are so many waves and so many conditions that all we can do is our humble best moment by moment.
It's a little bit like <clears throat> um, pedaling a bike. And at first we have to put in some effort. That's a little bit like aiming and sustaining your attention and trying to motivate yourself to bike along. But you can build up some momentum. And then maybe the way you're biking on a path, it heads up into a hill. So it feels like more work. That's a little bit more when you're working and the conditions are not super supportive for it to be easy. Yet, you're on a bike, you put it in a low gear, and you kind of slowly pedal through the hill. You don't try any harder, you go into a lower gear, and you just pedal steadily. But at some point you crest the hill, and you do start to glide a little bit. And then the practice feels very intuitive for as long as you're going on flat ground or downhill. And you can coast a little bit. That's often when there's a natural sense of samadhi, where the practice has taken on some ease. And what you'll notice is that it's easy to aim the mind or the heart, it's easy to sustain it. It's interesting now because it's easy. There's an underlying contentment again from the ease. And you can really give yourself over to it, to that particular stream. If at the next time you hit a hill, you're like, ugh, I'm done. I don't really wanna do another hill. Then you have to stop there. You, wherever you were trying to get to, you don't want to stop at the bottom of a hill. You want to take the momentum you're going, but let go of the easy conditions. Keep pedaling. Don't cling to them. And then take whatever comes next. It might be a little hill. It might be a big hill. But if you're willing to take both the ups and the downs of practice, it tends to be forward leading. And either you're clearing out old habits that are more connected to suffering or you're cultivating a garden of beautiful qualities that are ripening, or you're planting redwood trees that take root and grow into their amazing tall shape. No matter what, if you've been here, if you're just here in the silence, doing your humble human best, those two things are happening. We're either clearing out old difficult states, or we're welcoming and cultivating very powerful states, but they're at their beginning because we're welcoming them in, creating the conditions that allow for them. When I was in Burma, <clears throat> I had a chance to meet a nun and she, was, she had this reputation of being the most profound meditator of her generation. And uh, she was quite gifted at these arts of meditation and um, she had such incredible meditative breakthrough that she um, had remembered many of her past lives. And I had a chance to talk with her once and I said, do you ever um, do a lot of study? Has that been important to you? And she would say, no, I tend to just remember when I was there and the Buddha gave the talk and it's so much more accessible because there's a lot that's missing in the text and it's just words on a page, but you can, if you can remember what it's like to be there when he gave that talk, it's so moving. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> note to self. <laughs> when that happens, I'll, I'll, I might make that choice. But she, was, she had quite a reputation, but she was quite a humble being and when I asked her about this, about these qualities of uh, meditation, she said that she didn't put a lot of effort into focusing her mind if her heart was really discontent. So she would work on finding contentment, settle into contentment, and then begin focusing her mind on her meditation. And that's something I would like for you all to explore is how do you find some contentment in these conditions? How do you cool your own mind down from its agitation? How do you settle yourself in your body and humbly just say a phrase at a time, don't set yourself up for frustration by trying to achieve something great, but can you just um, relax, say a phrase with sincere intention and see if you can say another one and if your mind wanders, forgive yourself and bring it back. You'll have a lot less drama of success and failure and up and down if you can just sort of put, put, put along and sincerely give your heart over to a phrase at a time. And then the conditions will ripen and either you'll be letting go of difficult patterns um, or you'll be manifesting beautiful patterns humbly. So 
I hope you uh, continue to ripen and have enough faith to keep going in the middle of this retreat. I'm glad to be on it with you all. So let's just sit together for a moment. Again, we can let the words slowly evaporate, keep some of the openness of heart and hopefully some encouragement. May we be humble and wholehearted. Some time for walking, take in the last of the light of Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.